Hey, soccer fans, welcome back to Feed the Fire, a Chicago Fire and Major League Soccer podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and it is the international break. So the Chicago Fire had their weekend off. There were a few MLS games, but all the attention was definitely on the USMNT and their friendly against Germany. We're going to talk a little bit about that game and kind of have a reaction to the reaction, so to say, because there's been a lot that has been said about this USMNT team and their coach, the notorious Triple G, Greg Berhalter, after this match against Germany, and we'll give you kind of my response to it. We're also going to look at the 22 under 22 list that was put out by Major League Soccer, see who are the top young players in the league. And in the second half of the show, we're going to go over a little bit of the MLS Cup playoff format, just in case you forgot or had forgotten about some of the recent updates. So for all that and more, stay tuned. Well, Fire fans and Major League Soccer fans, welcome back to the Feed the Fire podcast. Again, I am your host, Nick. And uh, no under eight, no youth soccer update. We got rained out this weekend. I hope none of your plans were spoiled or ruined. So we'll get another story about my son's under eight team. And if they can finish the season undefeated, and if I cannot get yelled at by another coach uh, who lost his mind about how his team played um, you know, crazy for a bunch of seven-year-olds. I don't think that's the case. I think he's a one-off. I don't think other coaches are like that. Uh, but anyway, we'll get you some fun youth updates and my adventures of coaching next week. But this week, we are starting with Major League Soccer's 22 under 22, a list of the top young players in the league as decided on by Major League Soccer staff and the talent, the on-air talent from MLS season pass. So think Andrew Wiebe, think Bradley Wright Phillips, uh, think those types of personalities as well. Now, they, they voted on, again, the top players under the age of 22, and the players have to be 21 or younger before the end of the 2023 MLS regular season. So they can't turn 22 during the season. So that may have uh, eliminated a few, player, uh, few players from nomination here. Now, a couple quick things about this list. Only four teams had multiple players make the list. Chicago, Dallas, New England, and Red Bulls all had two players on the list, while Miami had three players make the list. Now, you want to call that the, the messy effect even there, that all of a the sudden these young guys who are probably terrible or, or borderline CF2, uh, sorry, not CF2, but like second team Miami uh, at the beginning of the season, all of a sudden now they're, they're playing with Messi and looking great. Yeah, that definitely helped them out a little bit here. You want to buy into the conspiracy theory that they're still plugging and promoting Inter Miami? Sure, go for it. But at the end of the day, as voted on by Major League Soccer talent and staff, three Inter Miami. Players ended up on the 2222 list. The biggest thing, looking at the number one, sorry, some technical difficulties there. So looking at the top of the list, the number one player, the number one young player in MLS, 
Alan Velasco of FC Dallas. And before we kind of look at him a little bit, we have to note that this is the third straight year that an FC Dallas player has been on top of the list. Ricardo Pepe in 2021, Jesus Ferreira in 2022, and now Alan Velasco in 2023. Now, Velasco, I think, is a worthy number one, but there are several other players that definitely have an argument for it. Just the, the guys rounding out the top five. The margins are so slim here uh, that there is definitely an argument for all five of these players to be uh, number one. I, I'll put an asterisk on that because the number two player on this list, Benjamin Miami, uh, who has been really, really good since Messi got here, uh, I, he was playing on Inter Miami's second team at the beginning of the season. So I don't understand how now all of a sudden he has gone from that to the second best player under 22 years old. That to me is a big leap. That to me, he's a huge beneficiary of the messy bump of the inter Miami hype, whatever you want to call it um, for a guy who didn't even start an MLS. Then again, maybe I'm making the argument for him for a guy who wasn't even on the first team to now starting in the second half of the season alongside uh, inter Miami's reworked roster. Maybe that does bode well for him. He also got his, uh, Olympic team call up as well. So Velasco deserving number one, big focal point of FC Dallas, a big part of what they do. Uh, good offensive player. And obviously goals will always weigh more heavily in your favor with voters uh, and with, with anyone fans, especially. Right. Uh, so I think Velasco is a deserving number one, but again, there's a case, I guess for Kramashki based on how his path uh, from the second team to starting. There's a good case for Aiden Morris, who has been an integral part of the Columbus Crews uh, run this year. He has some ridiculous statistic uh, of playing in in the central midfield. I, I think it's either like tackles one or uh, some other insane like interceptions. He has some just out of this world statistic this season that is really, really helping the Columbus midfield kind of dominate games. And sorry, I should have looked it up before I started the broadcast, but he is definitely a player to watch for Columbus, especially as we get into this postseason. You got to start to think if Darlington Nagby's legs start to go at any point that Aiden Morris is going to be there to kind of pick it up a little bit for him. Uh, coming in the fourth spot, Noel Buck of the New England Revolution, most notably in the news recently for getting called up to the England under 19 squad. Uh, so a lot of people are saying, do we want him in the USMNT mix uh, or should, or is it okay just to kind of let him go uh, and not fight England for this dual nap? But Noel Buck, again, a guy who's been very influential for New England. You need to have these complementary, homegrown, local or domestic players, whatever you, wherever you can find them. You need to have guys like him who are playing well above their level or their age or their experience, complementing your designated players and some of your high-level TAM or international spots. And Noel Buck has definitely been doing that for the Revs. Then rounding out the top five, no surprise here, for fans in Chicago, Brian Gutierrez. Now, Gutierrez had a decent shout for, for you know, number one, number two, or number three. But I think what really is holding him back, he did have a little injury. Uh, he did miss some time with injury this year. But he's just not getting on the score sheet. And, he, and here is what... MLSsoccer.com's official write-up of Brian Gutierrez was. Gutierrez, now in his fourth season with the Fire, has leaped forward in 2022-23, 
while tallying four goals, 16 assists across 64 games. The jury's still out on the U.S. Youth International's best position. He can play as a playmaking winger, as a number 10, or as an in-the-hole attacker. But if famed Swiss star Jardin Shakiri isn't keeping Chicago's attack humming, they need not fret when Gutierrez is on the pitch. So I think there it is. That's why Gutierrez probably isn't higher or a consensus number one pick or top three pick for this list. It's because he doesn't have the goal production that some of these other players do. And he has played in several different positions and has not been allowed to flourish. And of course, this the MLS can't say anything about the Chicago Fire without throwing something in there about massively overpaid players, Jardin Shakiri here, right? So that is uh, the reasoning for Gutierrez being in the five spot. I think he has probably less goals than anyone ahead of him, um, though he is a very productive player on kind of those non-statistical categories, those non-obvious categories, right? Now, it's really hard to argue against those top five players. They are key figures. They are starters for their teams, four teams that are, uh, in the case of uh, Velasco, Morris, and Buck in the playoffs, Kramaski, a second half revelation with Miami and Gutierrez, you know, trying to drag a Chicago Fire team into the playoffs. Now, you look at the next five players, and there's a little bit of a drop off here, but these are the young players to watch moving forward. And what's nice is four of the five are young American players, and I am not certain what number 10, Diego Luna of RSL's uh, national team status actually is. So it's great to see six and seven, John Token, Jack McGlynn, Red Bulls, and Philadelphia Union, and then eight and nine, Cade Cowell and Caleb Wiley, San Jose and Atlanta, and then Diego Luna rounds out the top 10, Real Salt Lake. And again, where we're seeing these next five, Diego Luna, has kind of made a name for himself with a few big goals, but then you're seeing Caleb Wiley, John Token, Jack McGlynn, some of the top defenders. So it's almost like whoever was voting on this list found their best offensive players and then said, okay, we should probably look at some of these best defensive players, and that's where you get the second half of the top 10. Where's the other Chicago Fire player on the list, you may ask? Number 17, Chris Brady, the goalkeeper, the only goalkeeper on this list and it's crazy that he's only 17. I think most people in Chicago think he should be closer to the top 10, not only being the only goalkeeper on the list, but the fact that he is already so much better than a lot of other senior goalkeepers in this league. Are you going to tell me that Velasco, Kramashi, Morris, Buck, and Gutierrez are top five at any of their respective positions? No, but there's an argument that Chris Brady is a top five goalkeeper in this league, if only based on the fact that Chicago is still in the playoff hunt. Also, he does have some really good statistics. So I really think if you look at it from that perspective, Chris Brady is clearly the best goalkeeper in the 22-22 pool, but also he's a top 10, maybe a top five goalkeeper in the league, and I think he should be higher up this 22-22 list. Here's what the MLS write-up says about Chris Brady. Chicago could have reasonably expected a drop-off at the goalkeeper position when transferring Gaga Slanina for up to $15 million to Chelsea FC last winter, but the club knew they had a more than adequate replacement lying in wait. Step in Brady, another top American goalkeeping prospect who's also a product of the Fire Academy. Brady's eight clean sheets in 29 games this year only begin to tell the story. 
And so it's pretty obvious to me that whoever's writing up these things about Chris Brady or voting on him has not watched a lot of it because the first thing they do when talking about Chris Brady is talk about Gaga Slonina. And the few people who really get into it have argued and have a good argument that actually Brady is a better goalkeeper at this point than Gaga Slonina was at that point in his career. Slonina had the benefit of playing with a very, very defensive-minded team and a coach in Ezra Hendrickson who in his first year said, I need to fix the defense. You had Chihos in his first year, you had Olmsberg and Tehran in their first year, and you had uh, those guys playing very, very well. Now you see Hendrickson at the first half of the season and Klopas now sending Chihos and Tehran forward, sending Navarro and Dean and Aceves when he gets in the game, and Suke sending them forward. So there's a lot less defense there. Also, we have seen a lot worse center mid play uh, out of the fire of the season. So Chris Brady has been doing a lot more than Slonina. And I'm not trying to, you know, have any sort of Slonina erasure or, you know, say he wasn't that good because he was. But Chris Brady at this point was probably better than Slonina was. And Slonina, I think, was much higher up the 2222 list. Uh, also, the people who are all over this comparison of Brady to Slonina are saying that Brady is just a better pure shot stopper and kind of hard to argue with that in some of the uh with some of the highlights we've seen him make so that is your top 10 on the 22 under 22 list plus chris brady go over to mlssoccer.com and check out the full list there i also went and looked at the chicago fire roster and who else could have possibly been considered for this the other players available yorgos kutsias javi casas sergio orahel justin reynolds and misael rodriguez i think we're all eligible uh, as 22 under 22 players. But of course, the only one who ever would have got an actual discussion would be Yorgos Kutsias, because um, the other players named here have spent the vast majority of their season playing for Chicago Fire 2. And maybe a couple times they've gotten in at the senior level uh, or have just been kind of bench players, depth, super depth players, I guess we could call it, uh, for the senior team. Uh, but what's great is to see that of those five names, the Fire could maybe have one or two of those guys on this list next season or at least really get them into some good conversations. Obviously, Kutsius is the one who's going to come to mind right away, but he just needs to get more starts, more minutes, and obviously more goals. Right now, he's got 12 starts and 947 total minutes, and most of the players who are in the top 10 are either day-in and day-out starters or we're getting between 1,400 1,500 at a minimum minutes here possible one of those CF2 midfielders can step up, maybe playing uh, as a winger if Guti comes inside and we move Shakiri back to Switzerland, as a lot of people are calling for. Other interesting stuff from this 2222 list, 14 of those 22 players were from MLS Next Academy. So Chicago does need to be recognized as a club that values its academy, even if the current coaching staff has no idea how to manage academy players and move players between the first team and the second team and develop them and bring them up and train them and, uh, you know, push for competition, all that sort of thing. But Chicago, I guess, as a greater organization, does have value in their academy system and their homegrowns. Because, I mean, look at it. Slonina, Brady, Pineda, Gutierrez, Reynolds, uh, Burks, older Reynolds, younger Reynolds, right? Um all these guys have come from Chicago, the surrounding areas. Even, hey, throw Chris Mueller in there, right? A guy from the suburbs who the Fire have brought back. Definitely some appeal there for a local guy. So the Fire do value it. The 22 under 22 list shows that there is 
uh, a good chance to get some good return on these young players from your local system. Uh, but I do think we need the fire where they can be better as an organization is getting more players into the U.S. Youth National Team mix. We saw how they didn't want to release Brady and Gutierrez uh, early on in the season. And, yeah, they were trying to uh, trying to push to get some momentum going. But they did make the latest Olympic call-ups. Also, at the younger levels, I'd like to see the fire really be pushing players to get into the under-17, under-19 camps. Not just goalkeepers. We do have two Chicago Fire goalkeepers with the U19s, I believe. Um, but we need to keep pushing the Chicago Fire players to get into that conversation. I would love for the club maybe to do some outreach with U.S. soccer or maybe host some camps or some training centers or whatever it is here in Chicago. Uh, however, they could make that work when they don't exactly have their own field. Uh, and that way, maybe that would get some Chicago players in the mix. But to wrap things up on the Chicago Fire, Brady and Gutierrez absolutely deserving to be on that 22-22 list, if not higher. Next year, keep an eye out. Uh, if Brady sticks around, he should be on that list, hopefully higher up. Kutsius could have a shot if he gets some more starts, gets some more minutes, and, of course, some more goals. And uh, we might get another two or three players on that list again. But the Fire is their senior club. Next match is not until this weekend, October 21st, at New York City, where they're fighting for the playoff spot. And we talked a lot about that game in the last episode, so you can go back and make sure you check that out. But one game I do want to talk about, at least a little bit, and like I said, this is my reaction to the reaction, kind of, is the USMNT, the men's national team, friendly against Germany. It was not a good game. I, I barely watched the second half. Like, I had it on. I was looking at my phone. I was talking to my kids and my wife, and I'd watched some of it. I watched the whole first half, but I just couldn't really get into it. For me, it wasn't fun to watch. The first half looked like they were going at like 80%. And it looked like Germany wasn't really trying all that hard for stretches of the first half. It seemed a little slow for an international game between a, a team like the United States who is really trying to assert themselves and a team like Germany who is just a, a consistent international powerhouse. Germany, had they taken their attacking a little bit more seriously, they kind of probably could have been up 2 or 3 nothing within the first half hour. But then Pulisic scored. And I feel like Germany had the moment of, oh, look at this. Little brother here thinks he can hang with me. He's trying to show me up here. Mm -mm, can't have any of that. And then, of course, Germany comes back, gets the equalizer shortly thereafter, and then goes on for two more goals in the second half. So the result was abysmal from the U.S. team standpoint, but you cannot focus on the result. At least I'm not going to. Hey, I'm not going to tell you how to fan, but just don't overreact to it like we have seen. Here's why. This is a friendly. We need to remember that. International friendly. I honestly don't think the United States was trying to win this game. They were trying to play their best. They were trying to work on some plays, work on some uh, technical abilities, work on formations and kind of game states. Like there was plenty of time where Matt Turner and goal could have bombed the ball downfield, or we saw some of the center backs bombing the ball, like playing long diagonal balls. There were plenty of times they could have done that, but instead they were playing around the back and they wanted to work on those kind of, th those kind of game states or those kind of, 
uh, opportunities. Maybe that's not the right word, but work on that part of their game as a team, tactically, technically, uh, playing out of the back when you have a team as good as Germany defending you. So please don't, don't put stock into the result. It was a friendly, all right? If you want to really evaluate this game, we need to look at it more of an individual player basis and an individual coaching basis. And here's the other team as far as the other thing as far as don't take the results seriously. You guys really think the United States is going to go out and beat Germany in in a soccer? Like if, if this game actually meant something, you really think the U.S. is going to go out there and beat Germany right now at this point? I don't think so. I just don't think that we as a team are good enough to overcome the shortcomings uh, of, of the talent of the roster construction of their, of some of the tactical weaknesses um, that we have, but just as an individual talent level, I just don't see it being there. So that's a completely different conversation. If you think the United States is ready to start beating Germany in 2023, Looking at the individual players, though, I don't think they were that good. There was not much creativity up the middle. And I know the U.S. wanted to try to play up the wing. You saw Tim Weah. I think he was probably one of the best players on the night, if not the best player. The way he was running the wing, getting behind the German defenders, playing some good balls in, developing a pretty good rapport with Gio Reyna, who was another player who I thought played really well, got the ball into some dangerous places. Uh, but... Uh, we got to always start the conversation with Christian Pulisic here. Despite his goal, he really was not doing much leading up to that. He was dribbling, in my opinion, way too much, trying to take on two and three defenders. I tell my, my U8 kids, if there's one defender in front of you, you can make a pass or you can try to dribble around him, do a move. We work on this. It's developing these skills, right? I'm not... Not going to get broken up about it if a kid dribbles and loses the ball. He's seven or eight. He's developing, right? But those are the opportunities when you can take on a defender one on one. Pulisic is usually one on two, one on three. And part of that is him trying to drive the ball forward. I don't want him to lose that part of his game, uh, but he's got to kind of understand where he can drive the ball forward. The other part of it is where his teammates, they're just kind of leaving him out there and waiting for him to do something in a lot of parts of this game. And that was a problem in World Cup qualifying that seems to have come back again. Also, Pulisic on his corner kicks. I tell, I say this to everybody. I don't care who you are. Stop playing the ball to the near post. Put it in the mixer. Play it right between the six-yard box and the penalty spot. And just give your guys, like, I don't know, tall man Chris Richards big aerial threat, Weston McKenney, give them the opportunity to go up and dunk on the defense. I don't understand why we're playing to the near post unless you have identified some particular matchup where you have a guy who can flick the ball on and maybe catch the goalie guessing or in between uh, his steps there and get him out of position or get him wrong-footed. But even that, like, just put it in the mixer. You got Wes and Chris Richards. Let him go up and get it. And, he, and then you even have your guys playing around the box for those second chance to be able to recycle it and keep possession on it. I, I just disagree with the short corner, or not the short corner, the near post corner. I disagree with short corners too, but that's not always going on a rant about. The other thing that I was disappointed in, I keep waiting for Weston McKenney to just take over games. And if not an entire game, I keep waiting for him to take over at least stretches of the game. 
but he did not look interested in that this game. And that was upsetting. And to me, that is as much on the players not being ready than on the coach for not getting them up. Speaking of the coach, here's where I'm critical of the coaching staff. It didn't seem like they changed much up uh, tactically. Again, they're not trying to win. I get it. But tried trying some different things. They weren't very creative. Secondly, they had their center backs way too deep. If I, I don't believe that we should be dropping our defenders that far back, even if you do want to try to build from the back, because then your guys are already in the box. You know, we saw Raymond Richards playing like on the 18 yard line. Like that's not helping anyone at this point, unless he thinks they're too slow. And if you think your center backs are too slow, get some new center backs then. And we'll talk about that just in a second. The other thing, I don't I don't know if he was coaching how they're coaching Serginho Dest. Uh, he's an attacking outside back. His best attributes are going forward, taking on defenders one-on-one, -on -one, and being a complementary player with Christian Pulisic. But he seemed to be purposefully held back until the 40th minute in that first half. And then he was sent forward. Then it's like, okay, you can go ahead, uh, go get some runs in, go, go get forward, do some of that fancy little stuff you learned at Barcelona. Uh, I, I really, it was almost like as soon as the clock rolled over to the 40th minute, boom, then he went and got forward. So it's like they were coaching their defense, stay back, stay back. The only way I can rationalize what I saw in that first half was it was an evaluation period. And here's, here's where I'm upset with the USMNT and Burhalter is that whenever there is a, uh, a question, a critical question against this team there's a good answer for it but then it always contradicts the next question and here's my example of that they kept their defense deep they kept dust back they kept scally back they kept ream and richards in the middle back deep uh to try and play out of the back and evaluate how they could do that right but if that is going to be how you're going to evaluate your defense why do you have tim ream in there why do you have Serginho Dest in there when you know that these Tim Ream probably isn't going to be on your roster in three more years for the World Cup and where Serginho Dest's best attributes are moving forward? And why do you have Pulisic on the wing trying to take on three guys? Why do you have two uh, ball-progressing midfielders in Musa and, oh my gosh, I'm space, uh, in Gio Reyna, you know, if you're going to keep your center backs deep and try to play out of the back, why not have two defensive midfielders right see so anytime we answer a question with a good with a good logical answer reasonable answer like five more pop up that's the problem i have with how burhalter has run this us mnt team and yeah the criticisms of you know his, his biggest attribute was he got his columbus crew teams to play better than the talent right the whole is greater than the sum of the parts kind of a thing we haven't seen that yet so that's, that's my biggest thing, right? Um, I, and I think I've hit all my notes and examples on that one. So just to wrap up this, this USMNT review, here's the stats. Here's what's even more troubling uh, than, than how they played. Six shots all game, three shots on target, 40% possession, 401 passes, 87% accuracy. And as you know, once you get over that 80, 85% passing accuracy, you tend to have a lot of defensive passes, and that's exactly what the U.S. was doing, so they weren't threatening. Meanwhile, on the German side of the ball, 625 passes with 91% accuracy. So there was no 
like again it has to go back to they were trying to evaluate certain things in this game so i'm not going to get too worked up about it but geez play some defense how do you allow a team to complete over 90 percent of its passes it was wild here's how three fouls three fouls committed by the united states again i get it's a friendly but that intensity wasn't there one yellow card for each team no reds the u.s was offside three times and was awarded seven corner kicks so they, they needed to take advantage of those corners a little bit more if you're going to get seven of them at the international level. Closing thought here. The USMNT definitely needs more games like this, more games against high-quality international competition. They gain almost nothing with the CONCACAF Nations League. And I loved the Nations League at its start because we were getting more soccer, more international soccer, and it's only going to increase the local competition but the United States now is missing out on taking that next jump in competition by having to play Canada, Jamaica, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, more and more and more. And I purposely didn't say Mexico because even though the United States has beat Mexico in these last three games and they've been hard fought games and we've seen a lot of individual moments of brilliance elevating the United States, we cannot measure ourselves in CONCACAF terms anymore. We have to measure ourselves in global terms anymore and honestly i don't even like watching some of these games against mexico because they just turn into brawls whenever the u.s gets any sort of momentum mexico will come in and hack an american player and it's terrible that that has been mexico's mo against the united states for years now regardless of coach or player or whoever their captain is or whoever's wearing the the red white and blue right it's just how these games devolve and it really doesn't do much for either team, really, Mexico is doing the same thing. Like, well, why can't we ever get out of the get out of the first round in a World Cup, right? Why are we fighting with the U.S. and Canada to maintain our top spot in Concacaf? Mexico should be doing the same thing that the U.S. is and getting more more international competition outside of Concacaf. But we'll see with Nations League. That's been harder and harder to do. So at this point, we have reached the halfway mark here. Let me remind everyone of our sponsor, Skira Icelandic Springwater, who has been with the podcast from episode one and even before that when we were developing it. So big thank you to Skira Icelandic Springwater. Icelandic for clear, Skira water comes from a spring in a government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water, clearly, pun intended. It's one of the best. So get out to your local 7-Eleven, grab a few bottles of Skira, especially now, starting to cool off, getting into fall. Still got to stay hydrated, everybody. Get out there, get your Skira. Now, in the second half of the show, as I mentioned, let's kind of recap some of the MLS Cup playoffs here, and then we'll do a little bit of a league news to wrap things up. So at the end of the 2023 MLS regular season, teams are qualified based on standing, obviously. Everybody knows this. You've got one through seven as your playoff uh, spots. And then you have the eight and nine in each conference as your play-ins. All right. So as the league rules put it, or as the league update put it, one through seven are auto qualifiers uh, for the round one best of three. Seeds eight and nine qualify for a single elimination wild card game. How do we determine standings? Well, points. There you go. Nothing shocking here. But here's where it kind of gets a little quirky for Major League Soccer. Points determine your, your place in the table. But tiebreakers, the first tiebreaker is the total 
number of wins, not goal differential, as in most leagues, MLS puts wins as your first tiebreaker and goal differential as your second tiebreaker. So it really behooves teams at certain points to go and play for win, which I think makes it a little more exciting. I kind of like having that. Third tiebreaker, goals scored or goals for. Uh, and here's where I think it gets a little quirky. The fourth tiebreaker is disciplinary points. So every team has a disciplinary record. They get a point for every foul, two points for every technical staff warning, three for every yellow, seven for every second yellow, seven points for every straight red. And it is capped at seven points for any single incident. So it's not like getting a second yellow is then going to add another seven for a red card. No, no, no. You, you can get up to seven points uh, for, for that single incident. So that's the fourth tiebreaker. Whoever has a better disciplinary record, good behavior, right? Uh, then moving on to your fifth tiebreaker, away goal differential, then away goals, then home goal differential, then home goals scored. And if there is still a tie between two or three clubs after eight tie-breaking scenarios, it comes down to a coin toss if it's two clubs or they draw lots if it's three or more clubs. Interesting stuff here. I don't think I've ever seen a tiebreaker get down to disciplinary points or anything of that nature. Honestly, I can't even remember. I, I only remember hearing at one point in my life of a, of a, a coin toss ever having to, to decide a tiebreaker in some league somewhere around the world. So it's very rare they get down to that point. The wild card game here. There are two single elimination games hosted by the higher seed. So the eight seed hosts the, the nine seed in each conference. If the score of the wild card game is tied at the end of regulation, no extra time, straight to PK shootout. I love it. Let's do it. Let's not get some tired. Let's not tire out the legs. Let's not drag out the game. I'm a big fan of this one. We saw how it worked in League's Cup. The winner of each wild card match then advances to play the number one seed in the best of three. Uh, in the regular first round of the playoffs. Now, round one, best of three series, will always have a winner, right? It says that every round one game will have a winner. And the first team to win two matches in the series will advance. So you could knock your opponent out after two games or three games. So it, maybe we'll see some a little, little coaching, uh, uh, some coaching kind of techniques here to see if they want to really go for it all in the second game and try and knock your opponent out and maybe get a little bit of rest compared to your next round's opponent. Or if you're down two nothing in that second game and, and you already won the first one, clear the bench, concede, and then rest your guys to go for the third one. We'll see if any coaches do any sort of interesting kind of roster management in that sense. But in this first round, best of three series, if a match is tied at the end of regulation, again, no extra time, straight to penalty shootout. I'm all for that. Now, the rules do change when you get into the second round of the playoffs. We'll talk about that in the next episode. That is a little bit more traditional single elimination style. Uh, but for the wild card and for the first round, that is how they will play it. Now, some real quick MLS news. I just want to point out a couple uh, roster moves. Houston and Inter-Miami have been locking up some pieces. Houston uh, gave extensions to Artur, formerly of the crew, uh, through 2025 with, an option through 20, with options through 27. And Ethan Barlow, they signed through 2025 with an option for 26. Now, Artur is 27 years old. Barlow, center back, 
23 years old, lock up, uh, lock up a solid center back. That's the way to do it. And then you've got, of course, Archer, hopefully someone who can be a starting midfielder for them, or at the very least, you know, a solid off the bench spot starter kind of guy, uh, someone who can kind of fill in uh, and work with Hector Herrera there. Inter Miami uh, also gave extensions to Gregory, their, their playmaking midfielder there through 2025 with an option for 26. He's only 29. Kamal Miller, their defender, got extended through 2026 with an option for 2027. And he's only 26 years old. He's hit, he's had some pretty poor moments this season, but on the whole has been a good addition for inter Miami. Obviously inter Miami is just going to be trying to outpossess, outscore, outpace, and just out intimidate you with Messi, Busquets and Alba on the other side. But earlier this season, I think back in September, even uh, inter Miami signed 21 year old midfielder Lawson Sunderland to options through 2026 he spent a lot of time with mls next pro team their second team uh so they're keeping him around he might develop into a guy who can come in uh and fill in the midfield for spells they also signed 16 year old homegrown santiago morales through 2027 with an option for 28 so we see inter miami kind of following the mold you've got your core you're in your championship window you extend a few of your playmakers and then you sign some depth pieces from within the organization other MLS news, MLS Next Pro Cup is this Sunday evening, October 22nd. Crew 2 are hosting Austin FC2. And MLS Next, the initial level on the pathway to the pro uh, for a Major League Soccer has kicked off in September. So there's a lot of MLS Next, some of your local clubs. Um, actually, it was kind of cool. I was talking with uh, one of the referees for my son's youth game last week. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I play for soccer's FC. It's an MLS next. And you know, that's, that's the pathway up. If you can excel and get noticed there, that's how you can get uh notice, at least in the Chicago area with either the Chicago fire Academy or some other scouts from around the league. So, um, he said, that's really good competition. You've really got to be on top of your game. Uh, but that's how the pathway to the pros starts with MLS next. That wraps it up for this week's episode of Feed the Fire. Please remember, go rate, review, like, subscribe, but especially share the show with your friends, with your soccer companions. Let's grow the conversation. Uh, let's get more people involved here with Feed the Fire. If you want to hear me talk about anything or leave a comment or respond, you can find me on X on Twitter at Glasshouse Soccer, S-O-C-C-R. Thank you, character limits. Or you can email me glasshousesoccer at gmail.com. Let's go fire. Have a good night.